For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're rounding the corner here in our study of Daniel. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are these narrative sections. It's, it's what we've been reading about the stories of, you know, uh, the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar's dream and all these different things. And then it kind of, the book kind of shifts. It's sort of half narrative and a lot of it, the, the, most of the second half is prophecy. It's these different visions of Daniel. We've had an example of that in chapter two where we saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It wasn't actually Daniel's vision. It was Nebuchadnezzar's vision that Daniel interpreted. But as we move forward in our study of this book, we're going to look more and more at the idea of biblical prophecy. John Wolvert wrote this great book, Daniel, the Key to Prophetic Revelation, talks about how important the book of Daniel is, not just in the quality of the prophecy of the book of Daniel, but how it fits with the larger picture of prophetic revelation in all of Scripture. He writes, among the great prophetic books of Scripture, none provides a more comprehensive and chronological prophetic view of the broad movement of history than the book of Daniel. And it's totally true. If you get into studying biblical prophecy, you begin to see that Daniel is the widest scope, and it's the basis for which many subsequent prophecies and visions uh, in the book of uh, Revelations, for example, draw from similarities in Daniel. So, One of the things that we have to work through here is chronology can always be a little bit wonky, not just in the Bible, but when you study ancient literature, um, they tend to to group things a lot of times, like you see this in the Gospels, they'll group things more thematically than chronologically. And so that's why sometimes when you read one Gospel or another, events seem to happen at different times. You know, the idea of, of, of chronology being the emphasis in telling a history is really a, a more Western idea in the ancient world. They had loose chronologies. Jesus doesn't resurrect before he's born, right? But there, were, there was more of a sense of freedom in telling and recounting a history that you could put different sections together thematically as opposed to chronologically. And so we get to Daniel chapter 7, and we find that this is after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which... If you remember, we studied chapter 5 t- last week. That was also after Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It was at the end of Belshazzar's reign. It was at the very end of the Babylonian Empire. This then, in chapter 7, takes place about 10 years before the writing on the wall that we studied. Belshazzar, Nabonidus' son, is still in charge. But this event happens about 10 years before what we studied last week, even though it's in chapter 7 and last week was chapter 5. Confusing, but we got it. Okay. So this vision is really a part of what I would argue are three different related visions in the book of Daniel. The first one we already looked at, it was the Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the statue. And this is a very interesting vision because it claims to be the scope of human history from the time of Babylon to the end of human history. The Bible promises that the kingdoms of men will come and go uh, for a time, but that then finally God himself will bring an end to the kingdoms of men and set up his own eternal kingdom uh, that will be a permanent for the rest of eternity kingdom of God among his people. 
And in this vision, it started with Babylon, the head of gold. That was what Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, empire was, was the Babylonian empire. It would be preceded by the Medes and the Persians, and then Greece, and then Rome. And then this strange feat of this statue of uh, clay and iron mixed together, which is sometimes referred to as New Rome. But we haven't actually seen that kingdom, the final kingdom of men, We don't believe that has happened yet, so we're not entirely sure what that's about. But these three different visions are related. You have those four different kingdoms plus the kingdom of clay in chapter 2, and then in chapter 7, you have four beasts that seem to correlate very closely with those same kingdoms. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel says, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four different beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And so this is another one of these bizarre visions where strange things are happening. We could point out things like, typically in, uh, in uh, prophecy in the Bible, Uh, Some stuff coming from the sea means that it's not Jewish, it's Gentile, that uh, these beasts represent something that would come from, uh, not from Israel itself. And the beasts we see are these four great beasts, and these represent kingdoms in this vision. Now, one of the things, whenever anybody gets up and they start talking about this means this, and this means that, and this is what this means, is we have to become skeptical, right? Right? Why am I saying that these are kingdoms? Why, how do I know that these beasts are kingdoms? Because some seminary prof- professor told me somewhere, or the church has had it in its history for a couple hundred years or a thousand years, that that's what this means. That's really not good enough. What I want to do is p- impress upon you the importance of Scripture should, is what should be the primary basis for informing Scripture. So when I say these four great beasts are kingdoms, it's because in Daniel 7.17, it says these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, okay? And so we have to delineate sometimes, and I'm going to try my best to do that between speculation and proof. I can say these four beasts represent kingdoms because it's clear in scripture that they represent kingdoms. I can say that it's likely that they represent Gentile kingdoms because they come from the sea, because other places in Scripture that imagery is used. But that would be slightly more speculative. I think there would be a very strong argument for it. But the qualitative difference of saying, no, Scripture totally explains this, and we're going to speculate about this, is important to note. So in verse 4, he starts describing these beasts. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth and its teeth. And thus they said, arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And then in verse 7, after this, I, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. 
and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. So we have the idea that these are four kingdoms, that these, are four, that these represent different epochs in human history. So that might clue us in that could we compare this to the statue? There are four kingdoms, there are four statues, or four uh, medals in the statue, so maybe they're similar. Oh, and he finishes and says, and it, will be, it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. So this beast, you notice, it doesn't have any, just, it doesn't have any corollary. The other one was a leopard, a bear, right, and a lion. He's like, I don't know what this is. This thing is terrifying. It's got iron teeth, and it's destructive, right? And so those are the four kingdoms, and they correspond, four kingdoms of precious metal, four beasts, right? And so if we put them next to each other and we begin to look, we don't, we're not told that the lion, the first one, is the king of Babylon, is the, ki- the kingdom of Babylon, right? But we're told, we know that Babylon is the first in the statue, and it would make sense because there, are, there is imagery here that's important. The lion, for example, is commonly used to, to refer to Nebuchadnezzar in Scripture. Jeremiah 4.7, Jeremiah 49.22, refer to Nebuchadnezzar himself as a lion. So we have a basis for thinking, well, the statue, the first kingdom was Babylon. Maybe the beast, the images, the first kingdom is Babylon. Another one that's really important is lions with wings on them have been found in the ruins of Babylon. You can go to Babylon and you can see, what is that? That's a lion with wings. Where is that? That's from the wall of the Ishtar Gate built by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in about 600 BC, right? So when I say we're being speculative here, I mean, it's in the strictest sense of the word that we're being speculative. It corresponds with the statue. There was already an established nomenclature for uh, Nebuchadnezzar as a, as a lion, and there's imagery from that time built by him that is a lion with wings. We could go on with it a little bit further. The wings torn off, uh, theologians have speculated that might refer to Nebuchadnezzar's fall when he went mad, uh, and then he's given a human mind that might refer to his restoration. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us specifically, but if you go with those first pieces, those are helpful ideas that make some sense. So the head of gold is, seems to be correlated with the lion with the wings. Then we get to the bear. The second metal of silver is the uh, empire of the Medes and the Persia. They call it Media Persia. Now, maybe it's lopsided. We know that, why do we call it Media Persia? Why don't we call it Media or why don't we call it Persia? Well, it was a conglomerate of two great empires that came together. And one of them, Persia, was greater, more powerful than Media. But they came together to form one thing. And here is this bear and it's lopsided, meaning half of it is bigger than the other half. So that would seem to point to the idea that this bear is representing media Persia. The three ribs in its mouth, we could speculate. The best speculation I heard was that uh, there were three great conquests that the, that the um, empire of media Persia uh, completed. Uh, one, it destroyed Babylon, it destroyed Egypt, and it destroyed Assyria, these other great armies and cultures of its time. So maybe the three ribs represent its three defeated foes. You go on and you see the leopard, the crazy leopard with wings and four heads. That would really be something to behold, wouldn't it? 
right? What is this thing about? Well, if it's Greece, one of the things we can say is Alexander the Great and his conquest of the known world of this region during the time was one of the swiftest campaigns of total domination that the world has ever seen. I mean, Alexander the Great is still known as one of the greatest military commanders of all time because of his dominance and the speed and his youth. How quickly this young man, in a period of 10 years, swept through the known world and, and ran the table uh, in uniting everyone under his rule. So a leopard would be a pretty good description of what Greece was doing during that time. A leopard with wings would be an even better description of this thing is fast, it moves, it's aggressive. Uh, it seems like that could be what it's talking about. Another interesting point is when Alexander died in 323 BC, his kingdom was divided into four segments that created four different kingdoms, four different rulers. And that could correspond to the four heads on the leopard, right? A kingdom with four heads uh, that's swift, that's fast, that's aggressive. And so, you know, we, I would think we would mark that up as a curiosity. We could look at those things and we could say, maybe, right? Maybe the statue and maybe this vision fit together. There's some good reason for thinking so. You know, the lion with the wings is really good. You know, the lopsided bear with the media Persia is pretty good. The fastness and the swiftness of Greece. You know, those things seem to line up. But, you know, how confident can we be? The fourth beast has no name. It's just this terrorizing, you know, ferocious monster that he can't even describe, right? It's like, what is it? What is this beast? You know, if the vision of the statues serves as sort of the table of contents for these visions, then that would be Rome, right? And so we got Taz as Rome talking about, you know, it's true that Rome was more powerful, more cruel, more dominant. You know, this whole idea that it's ferocious, it has teeth of iron, and it tramples and runs over everything that gets in its way, that would fit. All these details fit incredibly well with what we know about the subsequent history of the human race. The Babylonian Empire did fall to the Media Persian Empire. The Media Persian Empire was defeated by Greece, and Rome eventually took over Alexander the Great's empire. That was the succession. The statues fit, and if we take these beasts to fit, then they would fit in there as well. Again, we do know from 717, these great beasts, which are four in number, are kings who arise from the earth. He's talking about kingdoms. So, you know, trying to be objective, trying to be, you know, uh, Let's make sure we know what we're talking about here. What I would say is this looks pretty good, but let's not like sell the farm on this, right? Until two years later, Daniel has a third vision, which is recorded in chapter eight. And when we see the details of that vision, then I believe that we will begin to see that the statue, the beasts, and the, the animals in chapter eight are all talking about the same thing. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So what's he doing there? He's connecting these two visions, right? He's saying, I had a vision a year ago, and a year later, I had another vision. 
And so he's connecting them. He's saying this vision and that vision, this one was like that one, but it was a year later. And if you look at it, it's very interesting. It says, then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of a canal. And now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward and northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. And so now we have introduced this ram, right? And that doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like Babylon, right? The Babylon was the one that was established. It was the greatest kingdom. But he says that the ram has one horn larger than the other, just like the bear was lopsided. And Media Persia was two great kingdoms that had come together, but one was more powerful than the other. So it corresponds to the lopsided bear, ramming the you know, west, north, and south, fits with the geography in which uh, Media Persia would have expanded. So how confident can we be that Media Persia is being described? The answer is 100%. Because Daniel 8.19 says, Behold, I'm going to tell you, what will occur at the final period of indignation for it pertains to the appointed time. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Not speculation, right? You guys are like, oh, you're losing me on the ram, Ryan. But listen, this is clear. <coughs> One horn bigger than the other horn, Media, Persia. And he's talking now, so the vision, the third vision starts with Media, Persia. And so the second animal that he sees, would, you would think would correspond with Greece, the next kingdom. Let's look. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram, shattered his two horns. The ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. There was none to rescue the ram from his power. That hairy goat hates that ram. Why? That's very interesting. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken and in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Hmm. Who's the shaggy goat? Swift. It's moving so fast. This ghost is flying. Its feet don't touch the ground. It's a flying goat with a giant horn. Okay? It would correspond to the winged leopard. The large horn was broken, and four more took its place corresponding to the four heads of the leopard. Not only that, Daniel chapter 8, verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And not only that, but the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. What, did that, what happened to that horn? That horn got arrogant, it magnified itself, and it got broken, and then four horns came up to take its place. Let's talk for a minute about why the goat hates the ram so much. Now, you have to remember, this prophecy is being given 
two to 300 years before Alexander the Great would be born, right? This prophecy is happening while uh, Babylon is still in charge. But there was, history tells us, there was a specific visceral hatred that Alexander the Great had for the king of Persia. And he had very good reason for it. If you've ever seen the silly movie 300, it's about an actual historical event. It's called the Battle of Thermopylae or the Battle at the Hot Gates. And what happened was, uh, for quite a long time, for over 100 years, Media Persia was making its way over to Greece, and it was messing with the Greeks, conquering cities, uh, extorting money, forcing them to pay. And the, the, the movie 300 is all about how they tried to stop Media Persia getting in. They, they fought a valiant fight, and they failed. And then Media Persia was involved in meddling in Greece for almost 200 years as a result of that. So the Greeks hated the Persians because they had been, the Greeks were a very proud people and to be military dominated and have to pay taxes and tribute to a foreign government would have been very, very hard for them to do. So by the time Alexander the Great comes around, right, Alexander the Great is in charge of an army that is growing and becoming incredibly successful. He's sweeping through the known world. Everybody's terrified of Alexander and his army, and the greatest contender, the greatest army to face off against him was the Medes and the Persians. And you can bet he was not going to sue for peace with those guys, given the fact that they had been oppressing his people for about 150 years. It was payback time, and he was going to go get them. In fact, we turn to the Encyclopedia Britannica, and we read that Darius twice sent Alexander a letter of friendship, being like, dude, be cool. You're big, you're powerful, so are we. We don't have to fight. The second time, offering a large ransom for his family, because Alexander had captured his family, cessation of all the Archimedes empire west of the Euphrates River, and the hand of his daughter in return for an alliance. Alexander rejected both letters and marched into Mesopotamia and slew him because he hated him. And when we read that description of how much the shaggy goat hates the ram, you know, the ram was helpless before him, he smashes the ram, the ram falls down, and he just tramples on him. He's stamping on the ram. He's just pounding him into the dirt. That's exactly what Alexander the Great did to Darius, the king of the Persians, being described over 100 years before it would take place, 200-plus years before Alexander would defeat Persia, this is being described, which is interesting. It's very specific. It has to do with the hatred between these two people. Well, Daniel 8.21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that's between his head, between his eyes, the first king. So there's layers here. We not only have the prediction of the hatred of these two people, these two uh, empires, we also have the prediction that Greece would defeat Persia before Persia has even come to power. And then we have this picture of the ruler, the first king of this Greek empire dying and then being replaced by four 
less powerful rulers. The broken horn and the four horns that rose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. This is why, this kind of thing is why uh, the, the liberals like to say, well, Daniel could not have been written before Alexander the Great. It had to be written after because how would he know, how would anybody know that Greece would rise to power, sweep through the known world, crush media Persia, and then the king would die and be replaced and the, the kingdom would be divided into four. Alexander died at, uh, at 30, 31 years old. He fell mysteriously ill and was on his deathbed. And they were, they were like, you know, he was a young man. He was expected to rule his empire for many years. And they rushed to him and said, what do we do? You don't have a successor. You don't have an heir. You don't have a son. And he, was, he said famously, it's reported that he said, leave it to the strong. Let my generals fight it out. And whoever the strongest is, will win and take my place. Alexander, the first horn, died. His kingdom was divided. History records. Ptolemy took over Egypt. Lysimachus took over Bithynia. Seleucus took over Syria. And Cassander took over Macedonia. Exactly as it's being described here. So much so that it's difficult to believe for some people that this wasn't written after the fact. And there's so much more. There's so much more. But the accuracy of what's being said here is quite remarkable. It should not be lost on us. Let's put it together. The three visions occur over a 50-year period. The statue happens with Nebuchadnezzar. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and the terrifying beast, and the ram and the goat. I think they all correspond. They all line up. There's the five kingdoms in the statue. There's the four kingdoms in, the, in the, the, the beasts, and there's the two kingdoms with the ram and the goat, describing a succession of empires of Babylon, Media Greece, uh, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then what happens in the next vision is the beast uh, vision just begins to describe more details about this kingdom. Babylon is majestic, it's broken, then it's restored. Media Persia uh, is uh, lopsided, an alliance of two empires. It defeats three great empires, but Persia is greater. It's defeated by Greece. Greece was incredibly swift, vicious towards Media Persia. It defeats them in battle, and the first king, Alexander, dies, and the kingdom is divided into four lesser kingdoms. That's a lot of detail covering about 600 years of human history before any of it is even close to coming to pass. What are we to make of this? Well, it gets better. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus was an uh, Israeli, a Jewish general who lived around the time of Israel's destruction. Israel, after the time of Christ, rose up in rebellion against Rome. They tried to get their freedom, and they were utterly crushed, as with teeth of iron. Uh, the temple was totally destroyed. The people were totally destroyed. Rome had a policy where it was basically live and let live as long as you pay your taxes. But if you don't pay your taxes, we will wipe you and your culture from the face of the earth. And they did it with many cultures. 
And so when they rose up in rebellion against Rome, Rome literally took all the Jewish people living in Israel and forced them, just spread them out throughout the Roman Empire. Totally destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And Josephus, seeing what was happening, was taken prisoner and then agreed to write a volume called The History of the Antiquities of the Jewish People. And the idea was that he was going to write their history so that it would not be totally lost, and that somewhere in a dusty library in Rome, there would be a complete history of the Jewish people because there was going to be no future for them. And so he wrote this tome. This, I mean, it's a multi-volume set, and all of it is available today. And you can see what it, is, what it really is, is a stunning picture of an educated man who set out to create an accurate history of the time, 70 AD, of the Jewish people as they understood it at that time. And so there are many things that we know about ancient Israel because we have Josephus. And one of the things that Josephus tells us is that when Alexander the Great was on his way to battle, remember our map at the very beginning where we said, there's Israel, it's sort of placed, it's not a huge plot of land, it's not a super geographically uh, significant piece of land, except that if you want to go from one continent to another, you have to go through Israel. So if you're Egypt, or Assyria, or Babylon, or Alexander the Great, or Rome, and you want to conquer the world, you have to go through Israel or else you have to march your army through the Arabian Desert, which nobody wanted to do. And so as Alexander, according to Josephus, was on his conquest, he was passing through Israel, and guess what the high priest thought? We should, we should show him Daniel, because he's totally the shaggy goat. Here's what Josephus says. Let's read this. This is from Antiquities uh, 11.8. Alexander went to Jerusalem. Remember, this was written in 70 AD. Alexander went to Jerusalem, having taken Gaza. Jadawa, the high priest, had a warning from God received in a dream in which he saw himself vested in a purple robe with his miter that had the golden plate on which the name of God was engraved on his head. Accordingly, he went to meet Alexander at Sapha, followed by the priests. When Alexander saw the high priest of Israel, he reverenced God and saluted Jadua, while the Jews with one voice greeted Alexander. When Parmenio, the general, gave expression to the army's surprise at Alexander's extraordinary act, why are you saluting and bowing down to the high priest of this poduck backwater people who don't matter? Why are you doing this? So that one who ought to be adored by all as king should, should adore the high priest of the Jews, Alexander replied. I did not adore him, but the God who has honored him with this high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream. It was this very habit that was at Dios in Macedonia, who when I was considering with myself how I might obtain dominion of Asia exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea, promising that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Alexander is saying, I had a dream before I started any of this, and I saw this dude, who I now know is the high priest of Israel, but I didn't, I've never seen him before except in this vision. 
And this was the vision that told me that it was the will of God that I sweep through this region and conquer the world, and it was what gave me the courage to do it. And now here this man is standing in front of me. Alexander then gave the high priest his right hand and went into the temple of the Jews and offered sacrifice to God according to the high priest's direction, treating the whole priesthood magnificently. And when the book of Daniel was shown, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, well, Alexander supposed that he was the person intended and rejoiced thereat. The following day, Alexander asked the people what favors he should grant them, and at at the high priest's request, he accorded them the right to live in full enjoyment of the laws of their forefathers. Alexander said, you and I are friends, and I'm not going to defeat you. You're not even going to have to pay taxes. Just You guys just keep being you, and let me come through, because I got Persia to deal with over here. Because they had shown him the book of of, of Daniel, which had shown the shaggy goat stamping out the ram. And it is specifically said, the goat was Greece, the ram was Persia. Incredible. Incredible. And it has some pretty important uh, implications too, because remember our liberal scholars who want to date Daniel no later than 200 BC, because it's so accurate, it's so powerful, it's so clear that if it's real, if it really was written before 200 BC, then there is a God who knows the future and has spoken it to us in his scriptures. Josephus is saying this thing was around at the time of Alexander in 380, let alone before and he read it. That is astounding. That is an astounding picture. What do we make of this? What's the point? The point is this. The God of the Bible is real. He has spoken. The word of the Lord, the Bible The New and Old Testaments are the word of God, and there is incredible evidence that God is involved. He knows. He understands. He created us. We have a purpose. We have a meaning. And what he says is so important, it's worth organizing your life (coughs) according to the priorities, the morals and the teachings of Jesus Christ. This is not speculation. This is not something where we, you know, we're like, oh, well, this is one of many wise sayings. This is either the word of God or some kind of incredible hoax. And the implications and the importance of that are so powerful. And the Bible even tells us God does it this way on purpose. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. Do you understand what God is saying? He's saying, I have prophecy in my scriptures so that you will know, so that I can prove to you 
the qualitative difference between me and any other God that you've ever heard of, any other prophet, any other soothsayer, any fortune teller, no one can do what I can do because no one is God but me. And you're like, well, you know, um, you know, there have been these, you know, great prophecies made. Well, I would argue Nostradamus has nothing on this, okay? And what I'm going to show you next week is in a class all by itself in Daniel 9. This is sweet. I hope you see and recognize and understand the historical significance of what we're looking at here. But come back next week because Daniel 9 will blow your socks off. But all of it points to the same thing. God is true. God is real. He has spoken. He is sovereign. And we can verify the credibility of these prophecies in many ways with confidence. And that is so important because if the Bible is true and what we can measure, then it deserves an honest look in all these different areas pertaining to faith. What else does it say? What else does it mean? And none more important than the God of the Bible is our salvation. He is our redeemer. He is our rock. Isaiah 43.10, he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. I'm giving you this scripture. I'm giving you this prophecy. Why? So that you will be confident and you will know who I am and you will know what I am and that you will know who you are, that your job is to take this incredible witness, this incredible testimony of my character and my strength and my power and my love and my mercy and take it to all those so that all people will know There is only one God, and he is the God of the Bible, the God of love, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, and that that God went so far not only as to speak, but to take on flesh and dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was asked, what is it that God wants? If you could sum up what God wants, what, what one thing that God wants me to do, John 6, 29, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If you do nothing else, you know, there's lots of things that God wants you to do. He wants you to serve the poor. He wants you to go and be his witnesses. He wants you to be patient, love, loving, patient, and kind. He wants you to do all those things, but if you do nothing else, believe in Jesus Christ because that is the only way to salvation, the only way to reconciliation with him. The God of the Bible, the God who speaks, has drawn us to this point in this study where I hope that you will see. And if not, then just keep coming back because there's so much more 
There's so much more to see. There's the unfulfilled aspects of Daniel that we haven't even touched on yet. The statue, we've gotten to Greece. But there's the iron and clay, the the kingdom that's the last kingdom of men, which clearly hasn't happened yet, or at least to our understanding hasn't happened yet. The rock of Daniel 2 that's cut without human hands that comes in and grows, it destroys the kingdoms of men and grows into a mountain, and that is the kingdom of of God. It's known as the great and terrible day of the Lord, the promise that one day God will put a stop to all the evil, all the wickedness, all the corruption, all the selfishness, all the greed that is involved in human government and establish one government, righteous and good and fair and just with God himself at the head. He goes on to talk more about what that will look like. The end of human history and the establishment of God's eternal rule on earth. Well, what we're actually going to do is, um, because of the rotation, Daniel 9 will be next week, and it'll be our last teaching in the book of Daniel. There is, however, one more teaching in the series that is already available online, and it's Daniel 10 through 12. Yeah, thanks for this incredible picture, God, of, of confidence that you explain these things and you see these things and it means that you're paying attention, you're involved. We have great hope, God, that we are not alone and that things are not spinning out of control, but that ultimately in your compassion and in your love, you are going to keep us in your hands. And we just ask, God, if for anyone here that doesn't know you, we just pray that they would be able to hear clearly you knocking on the door of their heart and um, that they would, they would be able to make a clean, clear decision based on the evidence regarding who you are. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.